0: if we do anything worth doing long enough, and if it is worth doing, we will do it for a long time, there will come a time where we want to give up, where we feel like we can go no further. And in those times, we either find the strength to carry on, or we move on, we give up. Before going to seminary, I worked at a consulting firm for three years. In the beginning, I loved it. It was super fun and exciting. And I believe that God had called me to a time of work to mature before I went to seminary. But towards the end of my time there, it was really hard to go to work each morning. I would drive into this parking lot where the spots were far too small, and I'd sit in my car mustering up the will just to go into work. I don't know if any of you all have ever felt that at work. And while I was in my car, I would watch a video from the Lord of the Rings to like psych myself up before I went into work. Um, now, it probably wouldn't have been a big deal if I quit my job a few months early before going to seminary. But I really believe God had called me to serve there in that time. Um, and so it was important that I stayed faithful to what he called me to. But it probably wouldn't have been the end of the world had I walked away from that job. But walking away from God is a, much bigger, is a much bigger thing. It's far more serious than just walking away from a job. And we don't really know much about who wrote the letter to the Hebrews or who they were writing to, but we do know this. He was writing to a group of early Christians who felt like walking away from God. That's how they felt and what they were going through. From the the letter, just before we start our passage here, the author talks about how people from this church community had been imprisoned, that some people had their property taken away from them, so some people in the church started to feel like, man, is this really worth it? Is following God and making my life harder not easier? I don't know if I wanna keep on going. Is that a, a question that you've ever asked yourself, have you wondered, man, is this Jesus thing? Is it worth it?" I don't know if I have the strength to carry on. If you have, you have company with Christians in the early church, and you have company with lots of Christians today as, as well. Uh, A mentor of mine once quipped that people often start to feel this sense of hopelessness, the sense of, I don't know if I can carry on, because they might feel that either God is not there, that God does not care, or that God is unfair. And so maybe it's hard for you to carry on right now because it feels like God is not there. Maybe it seems you've been showing up for God for a very long time, but he hasn't shown up for you. Or maybe you feel like God doesn't care. A new school year is about to start. You're filled with all of the same anxieties. And you've heard before that perfect love casts out fear. So if that's what God's love is like, why am I still so fearful? Does God actually care about me? Or or maybe you know that God is there and you know that he cares about you, but he seems unfair, he seems unjust, Perhaps you've seen or read about or experienced Christian leaders who have not acted in a way that feels very Christian, and you're like, how could God let that happen? I don't know if I want to follow that kind of God. There there are lots of different reasons that we might feel like we don't want to carry on, but for whatever the, the, the reason is, we can arrive at a place of spiritual exhaustion. And the question is, how do we keep on keeping on when we feel like we can't keep up? That's what the author of Hebrews is speaking to. And if you like trace the whole arc of this book, essentially what he's saying is that in the first 10 chapters, he's saying, Jesus is better than anything else you would turn back to. If you're thinking, I don't know if this is worth it, Whatever else you would turn to, Jesus is better than that. That's what he's saying in the first 10 chapters. And then right before this passage here, he gives us three recommendations. He gives us three things to do when we're feeling like we can no longer carry on. He says one, instead of pulling away from Jesus, draw near to him. Two, Hold fast to, to your confession. Hold fast to what you believe in. And three, encourage one another. But in some ways, this seems kind of circular, right? Because if we feel like we don't have the strength to carry on, we probably don't have the faith to do those things. And so here, he starts talking about faith and what faith is. So we can answer the question, how do we stay faithful when we are, low, when we are running low on faith? And if if you're this morning, if this is you, if like, I don't know how I can carry on, then hopefully this will speak to you. Perhaps you're like, that's not me. Like, I feel good in my faith. I feel strong in my trust in God. But if you're like me, perhaps there's no question if you're going to walk away from God, but there might be some areas of your life that you have a hard time trusting God with. And I think this will speak to that as well. And if you wouldn't even consider yourself a Christian this, this morning, if like, you're like, I don't even know what all this is about, then perhaps just see how God cares for his people as we go through this, this passage. So we're asking, how do we stay faithful when we are running low on faith? And Hebrews in this passage helps us by ge- showing us the essence of what faith is, an illustration of faith, and the outcome of faith. And in the process, he shows us that remembering faith as displayed in the life of the faithful empowers us to continue living faithfully even when we feel faithless. That as we remember the faith of those who have been faithful before us, that empowers us to continue on faithfully even if we feel faithless ourselves. So we start by looking at what the essence of faith is by defining it. But before we look at what the passage says about what faith is, I think it's helpful to consider what faith is not. Oftentimes in our culture, the way we use the word faith, it's in opposition to facts. It's like faith is more of a thing of fancy. It's not something that's related to truth or facts or anything like that. Um, it's often put in opposition to science, like faith versus science, and I think that's not a helpful way of looking at faith. One, because science still requires trust and faith. There are complicated arguments about this, but essentially in science you observe things and you see what happened and you see if you can repeat it. So science depends on us to have faith and Constants like gravity stays the same, the strong and the weak forces aren't going to change. They require us to have faith in that, and it requires us to have faith that what we see and sense corresponds with reality. And those are two things we can't empirically f- prove. So this idea of science versus faith in some way uh, is unhelpful, but more importantly, I think it's not helpful to think of faith being in opposition to facts because that's not the picture the Bible paints of faith. There are examples of people in the Bible who are having a hard time trust God and they are looking for facts. You can think of Thomas, who's having a hard time trusting Jesus and he wants to see the scars on Jesus' sides. And Jesus does not say, how dare you, we just take things by faith, he shows Thomas the scars on his sides. And Thomas ends up giving one of the highest declarations of faith in all of the Gospels. Moreover, if you look at the Gospels themselves, oftentimes they'll name people who you're like, why do we care about this person's name? They do nothing in this story. And that especially happens with people who live close to Jerusalem. And one scholar has looked at that and said the reason why these people are named are so if the original readers had questions, they could go back and find these people who were eyewitnesses and talk to them and say, hey, did this actually happen? Talk to me about it. I want to understand. And so even on the Bible's own understanding of what faith is, it's not opposed to facts. So what then is faith? At the beginning of our passage in Hebrews, it tells us what the essence of faith is. It defines this with a pretty well-known verse. And if you've been around church for a while, maybe it's one that you've memorized. The translation in our Bibles this morning puts it like this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But I think this wording is a little misleading Because assurance and conviction both have this sense of like a subjective thing, a subjective feeling that I have. Um, And that that would reinforce this idea that, that we have that faith is opposed to facts, that faith is just a feeling that we have. But for one, I think the word for conviction is probably better translated as evidence or demonstration And the word for assurance is even trickier. And when I looked it up, I got super excited about this Greek philosophical concept that it referred to. And then as I tried to explain it, I realized I didn't fully get it either. And so if I tried to explain it to y'all, it would be an exercise in futility. So instead of that, I'm going to offer a translation that's similar to what the KJV uses the King James, and what the New Living Translation does. They put this verse this way. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Do you hear the difference there? Here it's talking about faith shows the reality of what we hope for. Faith is grounded in reality, but it's just a reality that we cannot yet see. So, faith is not just about feelings, it's about a reality, but one that has not fully happened yet. And one way we can think about this is something that's very familiar to us. We can think about it kind of like a receipt. So, how many people have ordered something online in the past month? Okay. The most recent thing I ordered online was some, like, starter cubes for charcoal. And when I made the purchase online, I got an email confirmation. Now, I couldn't see where they were in the warehouse, or I couldn't see what was happening, but I got this email message that said, Hey, this is on the way. You can't see what's happening yet, but we know that there's a reality that you cannot see that is in the works, and it will soon come to you. That's what I think this picture of faith that the Bible paints is like. Faith helps us to look to things that are real and true and are grounded in facts, but just things that we cannot yet see. And I think for me this is encouraging when there are times in my life when it seems that my faith is running low. Because faith is just not about me or my feelings, but it rests in reality itself. And When this is the the, the case, it's helpful to look to promises in the Bible. There are lots of different confirmation emails, so to speak, that the Bible gives us of this is what's true. And there are times when I might not feel like that's true. I might have thought I put in the wrong address for it to get shipped to. I might have thought it got lost in the mail, but I can go to the confirmation email and say, oh no, it's on the way. And that's what some of the promises in Bible verses are like. They can assure us of the reality that we cannot yet see. And so it's helpful to know what are those ways in which I struggle to trust that reality? And what are promises I can cling to that can help me there? So, for me to put my cards on the table, it's easy for me to believe that my worth before God depends upon my performance. If I don't do well enough, then God won't love me. And so it's very important for me to go to promises in the Bible that speak of how God's love for me does not depend upon how well I do in any aspect of my life. So what are those promises that we can turn to? Now at this point you might think, okay, waiting for a package to come is not some leap of faith. I've seen that happen all the time. And besides, the stakes aren't as high as like God and stuff, right? And so that's why the author of Hebrews tells us to do the same kind of thing. It's easy for you to trust that the package will come because you've ordered other packages and they have arrived. And so the author of Hebrews says, look at other people who've had to depend upon the promises of God and look at their faith and see how God was faithful to them and see how they had these confirmation emails from God and God delivered. Look at other people to help us as well. And it goes on to, in this passage, the chapter lists more people, but in this chapter it talks about Abel, Enoch, Abraham, and and Sarah. It zooms out as it plays the greatest hits of faith. But I want us to zoom in on Abraham and Sarah as we saw them in our Genesis passage in, uh, this, this morning. In Hebrews, it talks about how Abraham and Sarah had two great acts of faith. One, they left everything they knew to go to an unknown place appointed by God. And second, they trusted that God would give them descendants despite their old age. Our Old Testament passage gives us a closer look at this latter act of faith, of trusting God will give us descendants. And so that's what I'd like us to look at as an illustration of here's what it looks like to cling to the promises of God. So in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham in a vision. Now Abraham is the same person as Abram. When we read it, it said Abram. That's because a few chapters later, God will change his name as part of like a different confirmation email, as part of a different promise that he makes to Abraham. And so in Genesis 15, God comes to him and says, fear not, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And wow, that is an amazing promise. If you spend 15 minutes this week just meditating on that, that will probably be more fruitful than anything that I say this, th- th- this morning. I commend that to you. But it's interesting to see how Abraham responds when God says this. He essentially says, yeah, that's great, God, but why does it matter if I don't have kids? And I think he responded this way because these things that God had talked about being a shield and being a reward, or if you look at it, are things that in some way Abraham had already trusted God with. Genesis 15 opens by saying, after these things right before God came to Abraham in this vision, Abraham went to battle against some kings that had kidnapped his nephew Lot as part of a larger war. And he goes and he fights them and he is able to rescue Lot and emerge victorious. So he had already gone into battle. He had already trusted that God would be his shield. And then after the battle, one of the kings he fought alongside offers to give Abraham great spoils of war. And Abraham says, no, I believe God will reward me. I don't want you to get credit for something God is going to do. So he also already trusts that God is going to reward him. So Abraham is not a man of no faith. But there is one aspect of his life where he's like, God, I don't know if I can trust you with this. I don't know if I want to continue walking with you because I don't know if you'll be there. And perhaps that's like it is for us. Perhaps we don't want to walk away from faith. Perhaps there are some aspects of our life where we're like, I don't know if I can trust you with this yet, God. And so what does Abram do? He he doesn't hide that from God. He brings his concerns, he brings his doubts, he brings his questions, he brings them to God. As we look at this illustration of faith, I think it's important for us to note, not that Abraham like, always had all the best faith, but when his faith was weak, he went to God, he drew near to God, just like the author of Hebrews said. And God didn't turn him away, he didn't say, how dare you not trust me, he said, Look, I'm going to give you a son. But I know you can't see that yet. So I'm going to give you this promise. I'm going to give you this confirmation email. You can't see that you will have a son, but you can see these stars in the sky. And as surely as I made them, and as surely as they are more than you can count, so your descendants will be more than you can count. You can take that to the bank. And so in the illustration of Abraham's faith, we see someone who had faith in God, but his faith in God was not perfect. But in the moments when his faith felt weak, he went to God, he was honest, said, God, I'm having a hard time trusting you here. And God responded to that by giving Abraham promises, similar to what we talked about in terms of what the essence of faith is. Now, don't get me wrong, Abraham was not perfect. Right after this chapter he goes on to like utterly not trust God and take things into his own hands. But God's promises remained and God remained faithful to Abraham. And so we, we, we see that as we remember what faith is and as we see how it gets played out in the lives of the faithful people who've gone before us, that empowers us to live faithfully, even when we might feel faithless. So what is the outcome of when we do this? Well, if, if we look at Hebrews 11, in some ways it's not as encouraging as you would hope. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So the author of Hebrews says, look, these things that were promised them, they didn't get them in their entirety, but they saw them from afar. They got them in part, but not fully. And that is true of us as Christians as well. We often talk about how as Christians, our lives are in this tension between already and not yet. If we go back to, like, is God there? Does he care? Is God fair? We can see in some ways how God is present to us now in the life of Jesus and his spirit who's with us and the word who speaks to us in a community of believers. But we don't have that, like, walking with God that was described in the Garden of Eden. So we have this sense of the promise of God being with us, but we don't have it in fullness yet. We have a sense of how God loves us, of how Jesus has demonstrated his love for us, but it can still be easy to doubt, can God really love someone like me? We, we, we might see how God takes sin and injustice seriously in the life of Jesus, and in the final judgment that he promises, but we might wonder, oh God, how long? Why does it continue to go on for so long? And so we have this already but not yet sense of how God is, is, is fair. But nevertheless, it also says that by turning to God in faith, they received commendation from God and not only that, they commended God to, to others. It, it says how, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a true heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. So as these people cling to the promises of God and live in a way that does not make sense, they speak to the reality of God to people they live alongside. And in that process, even as they don't yet know the fullness of of these promises, God is preparing them so that one day they will be able to walk alongside God, so that one day they will undoubtedly know the full love of God, and that one day justice will roll like rivers. In the next chapter, the author of Hebrews will says, based upon how we've seen the faith of these people let us run towards Jesus. And he talks about how Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How we might not be able to always trust fully the things that God has has promised us. Sometimes our faith will waver But in those times, we have something that these patriarchs in the Old Testament did not have. We have Jesus who we can look to, who he said, I am going to look at this cross in the face. I'm going to look death and judgment in the face because I care so much about you. I want you to know what it is to walk with God. I want you to know the love of God. And so I am going to the cross for you. And so that is the ultimate promise that we have, that as we struggle to cling to things, we can cling to Jesus who will never let go of us. Please pray with me. God, I, I thank you that you do not leave us as orphans, as you say, that you do not leave us alone, but you uh, care for us even in our doubts and even in our, our uncertainties. So God, we would ask that you would teach us to cling to your promises. God, to show us the promises that we need that speak to the frailties of our hearts, And God, show us saints who have gone before us who have demonstrated not only what it looks like to be faithful to you, but whose lives have borne out how you are faithful to us. And Jesus, may we fix our eyes upon you who for the joy set before him and endured the cross. We ask this in your name, amen.